Hey there, friends. How's it going? My name is Kyle Devlin, and I am the host of this podcast. This is the Having a Blast podcast. Having a Blast is a pop punk and emo podcast where we'll be doing a deep dive on important albums and bands. We'll also be speaking with band members, producers, and friends. If you happen to like what you hear, if you could do me a huge favor, perhaps give us a five-star review. That just really helps get the algorithms working in our favor, and then more people can hear the podcast. Or Another thing that really helps us out is if you share it with a friend. If you've got a friend that enjoys this type of music, pop punk and indie, I'd greatly appreciate it. All right, without further ado, let's get into it. Hey, hey. Hey there, friends. Hello. This is the Having a Blast Show. Today, I'm excited because we're going to be talking about one of my all-time favorite pop punk records, and I'm sure it's one of your favorite all-time pop punk records as well. Today, we're going to be doing a deep dive of none other than Fall Out Boy's 2003 debut record, Take This to Your Grave. A pop punk staple changed the landscape of pop punk and decidedly ushered in a new era of pop punk and emo bands that are still relevant, still pushing genres, still pushing boundaries. And I think this record is still influential in that. It's a classic. It's about to hit that 20-year mark in a couple years, but it sounds just as fresh as ever. I've been revisiting it over the last few weeks, and the record still sounds amazing. So without further ado, let's get into it. So bury me in memory, his smiles so Okay, take this to your grave is the debut studio album by American rock band, pop punk band. They become a whole lot of things these days. A smorgasbord, if you will, of genres. They have changed their sound considerably since this record, but this record was released on May 6th, 2003, right before summer, on Fueled by Ramen Records. When the band was signed to Island Records, the label employed an unusual strategy that allowed them to sign with independent label Fueled by Ramen, and Fueled by Ramen was actually behind the scenes doing this with a lot of bands. I know Yellow Card, they independently released their EP, the Underdog EP on Field by Ramen as a means of transitioning to a major label so it didn't seem like they didn't have any independent label cred. So they wanted to develop them a little bit more and I think that was the case for Fall Out Boy as well. So Field by Ramen released their debut and Fall Out Boy then later moved to Island Def Jam Records for their second album. Sean O'Keefe was the producer and he had helped the band record their demo and they returned to Smart Studios in Madison, Wisconsin to record the bulk of their first album with him. Fall Out Boy lived on Strangers Floors for part of the time, eventually ran out of money halfway through the recording. The band recorded seven songs in nine days, bringing them together with the additional three from the demo. So pretty crazy to think a record that had such a lasting impact had a bit of a tumultuous recording process. While Patrick Stump 
had previously written all of Fall Out Boy's lyrics and took them lightly, Pete Wentz took to the process with considerable seriousness, even obsessively picked apart some of his bandmates' lyrics. The exhausting process led to numerous revisions of their songs and single songs, and several arguments were had by the band members while recording. The album cover, which shows the four bandmates sitting on a broken futon, features a blue tent reminiscent of jazz records and was the second choice after the original was rejected by the label. I'd love to see that artwork if it exists. I'm sure somebody's got it. Edit. It does, in fact, exist, and you can look it up very easily, and it is not as cool as the artwork that they eventually went with. Take This to Your Grave gradually created interest in the band as they toured across the country, including a five-day stint on Warp Tour 2004, and they were definitely picking up buzz before that. I remember the first time I heard Take This to Your Grave, my good friend Alan, we like to call him Hawaiian Alan because he was from Hawaii, he had burned me a mix CD that had Take This to Your Grave on it maybe a few weeks before it came out, so I was lucky enough to hear it before it was officially released, and I remember having conversations with Pete online because I was booking shows in the Midwest around that time and he was booking shows in Chicago and I do remember having an AOL instant messenger exchange with him before the record came out somewhere between 2000 and 2002 and he was always very friendly. I remember hearing Take This to Your Grave and immediately being hooked to the recording. At the time, independent recording was definitely leveling up and this was a good example of that. It sounded really good. It sounded punchy. I love Sean O'Keefe's production. I had been listening to a band called Knockout who was also from Chicago and their record was done by Sean O'Keefe as well. And I'm pretty sure Patrick Stump sings on the very last song of that record. So I was fairly acquainted with Sean O'Keefe as a producer and Fall Out Boy as a band from Chicago. I don't think I adequately predicted their success or I couldn't have predicted how successful the album would have been, but I definitely enjoyed the album. And it was pretty apparent that they were on their way up. They were blowing up by the end of 2003. The album produced three singles, including the minor success of Grand Theft Autumn, Where Is Your Boy?, and has often been named as a vital blueprint for pop punk, with Alternative Press calling the album a subculture touchstone and a magical, transcendent, and deceptively smart pop punk masterpiece that ushered in a vibrant scene, resurgence with a potent combination of charisma, new media marketing, and hardcore punk urgency. So, background of the record, Fall Out Boy was formed in 2001. They've been a band for 20 years this year. They formed in the Chicago suburb of Wilmette, Illinois, by friends. Pete Wentz and Joe Troman. Wentz was a visible fixture of the relatively small Chicago hardcore punk scene of the late 1990s, performing in various groups including the metalcore band Arma Anglis. Wentz was growing dissatisfied with the changing mores of the community, which he viewed as a transition from political activism to an emphasis on moshing and breakdowns. Well, yeah, but isn't that why people like hardcore music? Moshing and breakdowns? Mm, I don't know. With his enthusiasm in Arma Anglis waning, he created a pop-punk side project with Troman. Troman met Patrick Stump, the drummer for grindcore band Grinding Process, at a bookstore in Wilmette. The band's first public performance was in a cafeteria at DePaul University. The band's only performance with guitarist Joe Flamandon and original drummer Ben Rose was in retrospect described as goofy and bad. And that's the quote by Troman.
Troman, but Troman made an active effort to make the band work, picking up members for practice. The band later went to Wisconsin to record a proper demo with Seven Angels, Seven Plagues drummer Jared Logan. Uprising Records owner Sean Mutaki wanted to release half of it as a split extended play EP with Andy Hurley's band Project Rocket, which the band viewed as a competition. With Logan's help, the group put together a collection of songs in two days and recorded them as Fall Out Boy's Evening Out With Your Girlfriend. That's their first demo slash release. The rushed recording experience and underdeveloped songs left the band discontented, and I'm pretty sure they started as a side project joke, really. They were kind of a joke. They were started as a joke band to do something a little bit more light, a little bit more upbeat. At Smart Studios in Madison, Wisconsin, the band recorded their three songs of a possible split 7-inch with 504 Plan, another great Chicago pop-punk band. Engineer Sean O'Keefe suggested they record with Hurley, who sat in for the session. The band booked a two-week tour with Spittlefield, another classic band, and invited Hurley to fill in for recently departed members while Stump borrowed one of Joe Troman's guitars for the trek. The band began to shop around the three songs from their unreleased split as a demo to record labels. In the process, Bob McLean of Crush Management became the band's first manager, so that was helpful. The band returned to the studio with O'Keefe, Sean O'Keefe, to record several more tracks to create label interest. John Janik, who is now the chairman and CEO of Interscope Geffen A&M Records, so that's pretty cool. In 2003, he was the co-owner of Fuel by Ramen, had heard an early version of a song online, and cold called the band at their apartment, first reaching Patrick Stump and later talking to Pete Wentz for an hour. Rob Stevenson from Island Records eventually offered the band a first ever incubator sort of deal, and that's in quotations, so it must have been a bit of an experiment, in which they gave the band money to sign with Fuel by Ramen for their one-off debut, knowing they could upstream the band to radio with the sophomore record, and that was a good decision. Fueled by Ramen, at the time, the smallest of independent labels clamoring to sign the band would effectively release their debut album and help build their ever-expanding fan base before the move to Island. While the band had secured an investment from the label, they did not see immediate success. And I know they were grinding it out. They were touring and stuff, but there was a lot of hype around that record almost immediately. And Fueled by Ramen wasn't that small. I mean, they were doing things. I remember buying their compilations and really liking Fueled by Ramen releases by The Impossibles and Less Than Jake had put out some B-side records on that label because Vinny, the drummer of Less Than Jake, he owned 50% of Fueled by Ramen at first, I believe. Recording and production of Take This to Your Grave. The pre-production phase was completed in a warehouse the band used at night, free of charge, where they discussed how they wanted the songs to sound. Many songs intended for the album did not fit, and though the band originally planned to use the leftovers for future albums, they abandoned the songs instead. The band again partnered with O'Keefe at Smart Studios in Madison, bringing together the three songs from the demo and recording an additional seven songs in nine days. According to Patrick Stump, the band didn't sleep anywhere that we could shower. There was a girl that Andy's girlfriend at the time went to school with who let us sleep on her floor, but we'd be there for maybe four hours at a time. It was crazy. According to Pete Wentz, we were lying to our parents about what we were doing and cutting corners. I was supposed to be in school. I didn't have access to money or a credit card. I don't think any of us did. The studio provided the band with soda during the recording 
recording process, but the band was hungry. We were like, could you take that soda money and buy us peanut butter, jelly, and bread? Which they did. The group's goal with Grave was to make an album that was as seamless and good from song to song as saves the day through being cool. And they have good taste because that, that is a seamless record. I listened to that today, actually. Another classic record. Sean O'Keefe paid for the studio time for the band himself. And that was a good choice. <laughs> he must have believed in the band. Because of his perfectionist tendencies, he pushed the band so that Hurley felt the recording process was more professional. He compared the making of Take This to Your Grave to Going to War, stating that recording with the rest of the band was similar to being in the trenches together. The process was not without its difficulties. It's not always happy. There's a lot of push and pull and each of them trying to get their thing. With the album, we never let anything go until all three of us were happy, said Sean O'Keefe. And he's referring to himself, Pete Wentz, and Patrick Stump because Pete Wentz and Patrick were fighting a lot and they were probably experiencing that perfectionistic tendency as well. Pete Wentz recalled that it was mind-blowing to see a certification plaque for Nirvana's Nevermind on a wall. The band was shown the microphone used in the recording of that album, but were unable to use it as, they said, only Shirley Manson from Garbage could use it. The group created a running joke to pick on O'Keefe after he mentioned he had smoked marijuana at least once months before. The quartet was straight edge then and exaggerated the story to insinuate Sean O'Keefe was a habitual, obsessive user of the drug. The band credited O'Keefe in the album booklet with 10 different stoner nicknames. (laughs) One that comes to mind is Dimebag O'Keefe. Although only several remained after the record label felt it was excessively ridiculous. (laughs) Okay. The band received $40,000 investment from Island Records to create the album, but it was completed for roughly $18,000. That's a classic record for under 20 grand. Okay, so now I want to talk a little bit about the composition of the record. So, the music, the album was described as pop punk, and I would describe it as pop punk as well. Some other people might consider it more of an emo record, or emo pop, emo rock. Manny Mustafi, former vocalist of of Race Trader had held many discussions with Pete Wentz when the band formed about their pop punk sound, which Wentz described as softcore. Mostafi described Take This to Your Grave as sounding like Hot Topic but feeling like CBGB. The lyrics of the album, according to Johnny Loftus of All Music, Take This to Your Grave's lyrical content merges musings on love and youth with healthy amounts of cutting cynicism, savvy popular culture touchstones, and cheeky phraseology. Patrick Stump wrote Saturday about how it felt about how he felt like a failure on graduating from high school and originally kept the song to himself until the group needed additional songs. Stump then collaborated with bassist Pete Wentz to complete the song's lyrics. Grand Theft Autumn, Where Is Your Boy, deals with jealousy and unrequited love. Patrick Stump, who viewed himself as an artsy-fartsy dude who didn't want to be in a pop-punk band, had written most of the band's lyrics to that point, including the song Saturday, Dead on Arrival, Where Is Your Boy, Grenade Jumper, and Homesick at Space Camp. While Stump did not take his lyrics seriously, Pete Wentz had recently recommitted himself to the band, and it felt like he had a list of things in his head he wanted to do right. Lyrics were on that list. Wentz picked apart Stump's lyrics excessively down to syllables and began giving him notes. Stump felt exasperated, remarking to the bassist, You just write the fucking lyrics, dude. That was probably a smart move, actually, because I think those lyrics transcended pop punk at the time. They may seem a little dated now and a little misogynistic even, but they were smart for that time. And I think it resonated with a lot of young males who were heartbroken. Patrick Stump said, just give me your lyrics and I'll write around them. The 
duo were new to this process and they found it exhausting. Stump would write the song, scrap his lyrics, then attempt to fit Wentz's lyrics where his were. So I would assume Patrick Stump was writing the melodies, he'd write a phrase, and then Pete Wentz would probably hand him a notebook with lots of lines and clever phrases and things, and then Patrick would then have to try to fit the phrases to his melodies, which can be really difficult. And that's why sometimes it's better to write the lyrics with the melody or write the melody out of the lyrics. Let's see. Patrick Stump was more concerned with the melodies, including the rhythm, syncopation, and alliteration of words, while Pete Wentz felt none of it mattered if the lyrics themselves lacked meaning. The result made the two musicians unhappy. Man, did we fight about that, recalled Stump in 2013. We fought for nine days straight, all while not sleeping and smelling like shit. It was one long argument, but I think some of the best moments are the result of that. Sean O'Keefe commented on on the process. They would go through 10 revisions for one song. I thought I was going to lose my mind with both of them. <laughs> Ultimately, it paid off. It's a fantastic record and it's just so easy to sing. Okay, so some of the songs. Let's talk about the songs. The first song, Tell That Mick He Just Made My List of Things to Do Today, opens with a telephone dial tone, which Wentz found particularly enjoyable as it provided stark contrast to the louder instrumentation to follow. The song's chorus was the result of many arguments between Wentz and Stump over the phonetic phrasing of words versus their meaning. Wentz ended up throwing out all of Stump's lyrics for the first time in the recording process and rewrote them entirely himself, a first. Stump said, I realized I must really want to be in this band at this point if I'm willing to put up with this much fuss. Lyrics such as, let's play this game called When You Catch Fire, I Wouldn't Piss to Put You Out, were inspired by Chris Conley's use of bizarre metaphors to prove a point on Saves the Days through being cool. Dead on Arrival is among the earliest compositions, dating to before Hurley joined the band. Stump's song Saturday marked one of the first times Wentz and Stump collaborated on lyrics. Wentz considered it the best representation of the band at the time. In contrast, both disliked Grand Theft Autumn Where Is Your Boy during the recording process. Stump particularly disliked the acapella opening, which was O'Keefe's idea. And that's kind of shocking that he didn't like it because it's so catchy. Sending postcards from a plane crash is largely a studio creation and was seldom played live by the band. Stump and Wentz had a particularly big fight regarding the track Chicago is so two years ago, which Stump initially did not want to record. He had secretly kept it to himself in case the band did not work out, and he wanted to pursue his own music. But Sean O'Keefe wanted to introduce it to the rest of the band after he heard Patrick Stump singing it to himself in the studio lobby. Pete Wentz disliked several lyrics, and he and Stump argued over every word one by one. The bridge features a guest appearance by Motion City soundtrack frontman Justin Pierre. Chicago is so two years ago. That's the one that he guests on. The band had wanted Pierre on the song but schedules did not work out initially. Sean O'Keefe, who was friends with Pierre, recorded Pierre's part, which he wrote while the band was on tour, leaving it as a surprise for the rest of the group. Grenade Jumper references Christopher Gutierrez, who was an early supporter and attended each show from the beginning. The song's chorus came from a conversation between Joe Troman and Stump in the kitchen of the band's apartment. Joe Troman said they should write a fan appreciation song, and Stump noted how Chris was, quote-unquote, their only friend. And God bless those early adopters friends. Appreciate you. The song's title refers to a phrase coined by the band regarding whoever would be the person that would have, um, 
relations biblically with a girl in order to have the rest of the band stay at the house, said Wentz. Calm Before the Storm appears on the band's first true recording, Fall Out Boy's Evening Out with Your Girlfriend. Its bridge features a screaming harmony from Pete Wentz, which took five or six digital tracks to create. Reinventing the Wheel to Run Myself Over was heavily inspired by the band Lifetime, another classic punk band. Following the song's conclusion, Damar Hamilton of Plain White Tees can be heard singing the song's refrain while laughing. The patron saint of Liars and Fakes was composed in drop D and provides a dark ending to the record. Patrick Stump wrote it just outside of his vocal range and found it difficult to sing while recording as he was not a singer before joining the band Fall Out Boy. It was intended as foreshadowing of the sound the band intended to use on their next record. The song that opens their second album, Our Lawyers Made Us Change the Name of This Song So We Couldn't Get Sued, is also composed in drop D. So that's kind of cool like a continuation. And I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the thing that I noticed the second I heard this chorus. The melody is a bit lifted from Taking Back Sunday's Cute Without the E. If you listen to the beginning melody, it's about the exact same. And there was another band that also lifted this melody around the same time. Till All Your Friends came out in 2002. Take This to Your Grave came out in 2003. Maybe it just latched onto their subconscious. I'm sure it wasn't a purposeful thing, but I always think of it anytime I hear the song The Patron Saint of Liars and Fakes. So now I want to talk a little bit about the artwork. The blue tinted cover of Take This to Your Grave features the band's four members, left to right, Pete Wentz, Andy Hurley, Patrick Stump, and Joe Troman, sitting on a couch with their names printed above, in a nod to classic Blue Note jazz records. The futon pictured in the photograph was actually broken in the middle and contributed to the members' close proximity. The exposed brick wall was part of what Wentz described as the worst apartment of all time. The photo was simply a promotional photo taken during the band's promotional cycle although Stump wanted a live photo on the cover. It was originally intended to be used on the back of the cover and left one unnamed member of the band pissed about it forever. In addition, not every member was keen on having their names printed on the cover as it was very uncommon for modern albums. Wentz used the cover in an effort to reject the notion that the group was all about him and to demonstrate that the four members mattered as a team. Quote, Pete had always wanted to create a culture with a band where it was about all four guys and not just one guy. End quote remembered Patrick Stump. Ryan Bakerink was the album's photographer shooting both the rejected and final cover. The band stripped Wentz's bedroom, the largest, and filled it with items from each member's room to create the set. In hindsight, I kind of feel like the rest of the band just let Pete do all the heavy lifting. It was exhausting. We were both carrying beds and dressers and all these things into the other room, and we were just soaked in sweat, Bakerink recalled. He had had a lengthy conversation with Stump, and Stump's love for Elvis Costello and found an Armed Forces LP of Stumps sitting out, strategically placing it in the image to play it off as Stumps. As the band was rooted in nostalgia from early on, the photograph was filled with 1980s toys and cereals. The photo went through several versions, with one idea involving the bed sheet pulled back as if somebody had gotten out of bed and left a letter to someone. As the album title had yet to be finalized, they did two shots of a sealed envelope, one with the alternate title to my favorite liar and one with take this to your grave. Eventually Wentz suggested they use his then girlfriend lying on her back in bed exhausted. Bakerink showed the Polaroid to Wentz who immediately loved the shot. The photo session ran later and later and by 2am they began shooting individual member shots and what became the album cover. When it was sent to Fueled by Ramen for approval the label responded that they couldn't clear any of this stuff such as posters of Cher, Morrissey and Edward Scissorhands and images of Count Chocula and Darth Vader were in the 
background. Dun, 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 dun. Copyright law. When Troman showed the new album cover to Baker Inc. at the album release party at the Metro, he was surprised. It was interesting how they ended up using the last image we took that night, and I didn't even know it was supposed to be used at all. I wound up really liking it. The original cover was eventually used for the first pressing of the album's vinyl edition. Alternative Press called the finalized cover the Pop Punk Abbey Road, calling it instantly recognizable, extremely identifiable, and absolutely iconic in certain circles. Pete Wentz elaborated on the selection of that particular image and not the record's original cover. It makes me wonder how many of these things are just accidental moments. If we had had a bigger budget, we probably would have ended up with a goofier cover that no one would have cared about. Alright, the release of the record. Take This to Your Grave was released in the United States on May 6th, 2003 by Fueled by Ramen Records. The band held a release party at the Chicago venue, The Metro, classic venue. Previously, one of the band's earliest recordings, Evening Out with Your Girlfriend, had not been released until shortly before Grave in March 2003 when the band had gained considerable momentum. Quote, our record was something being rushed out to help generate some interest, but that interest was building before we could even get the record out, end quote said Sean Mudukai. The band actively tried to stop Uprising from releasing the recordings as the band's relationship with Mudokai had soured. The band viewed it as a giant piece of garbage, recorded before Hurley's involvement, and the band ceased to consider it their debut album. Gradually, the band's fan base grew as the label pushed for the album's mainstream success. The band's popularity grew as the band would play anywhere. They did frequent in-store performances at retailers selling the album. I remember seeing Less Than Jake and Fall Out Boy opened, and they had a nice little sampler that had two songs from Anthem and two songs from Take This to Your Grave and I'm sure that helped quite a bit in generating hype for Fall Out Boy. While many of the stores that they were playing around that time were corporate owned with numerous rules, the in-store performances that is, such as Hollister, they surprisingly allowed the band to perform as they wanted. One performance at a Hollister store in a mall in Schaumburg, Illinois, the band's merchandising manager took a decorative surfboard off the wall and began crowd surfing during the band's final song. According to Pete Wynn, shows began to end in a near riot and the group were banned from several venues because the entire crowd would end up on stage. The band garnered positive reviews for subsequent gigs at South by Southwest and various tour appearances. They joined the Warp Tour for five dates in the summer of 2004 and on one date the band had only performed three songs when the stage collapsed due to the large crowd. The band finished with an acapella rendition of Where Is Your Boy with the audience. Many of the more established bands were angry at the new up-and-comers stealing the spotlight and i think that's probably certain people's interpretation i'm sure that was a good year for warp tour i'm sure there was a lot of big bands that probably weren't really paying a whole lot of attention there was a lot of egos too so i'm sure everybody was fighting for popularity. The band was photographed for the cover of the August 2004 edition of Alternative Press, and listening stations at Hot Topic partially helped the album move two to 3,000 copies per week by Christmas 2004, at which point the label considered the band tipping into mainstream success. Prior to signing with Island, Take This to Your Grave had sold 200 to 300,000 copies, considered outstanding for an independent album. Yeah, I would say so, especially when albums continue to sell like that on independent labels. So they were amassing tons of hype. In 2005, a second single, Grand Theft Autumn Where Is Your Boy, peaked at number 84 on the now-defunct Billboard Pop 100. The album was re-released in January 2005 as Take This to Your Grave, the director's cut, for a run of 5,000 copies, featuring a dance remix of Where Is Your Boy and a cover of The Police's Roxanne. And I remember that was on a police compilation put out by the Militia Group. The director's cut was also an enhanced CD that had footage of the band commentating 
rating and breaking down each song and the music video for Saturday. In 2006, Take This to Your Grave was certified gold by the Recording Industry Association of America for shipments of half a million copies, and it sold over 550,000 copies by January of 2007. By the week ending August 24th, 2008, Take This to Your Grave passed 634,000 sales, according to Billboard. In 2013, the album was certified gold, British phonography industry, for over 100,000 shipments. Nothing to sneeze at. I'm sure eventually it'll sell a million records. Let's talk about the reception and the legacy of the record. John Loftus of All Music, whom I mentioned earlier, described the album as a spectacular debut art project, calling it a smart collection of emo-influenced pop-punk tunes. Rolling Stone wrote that Fall Out Boy shows a knack for mixing caffeinated, up-tempo tunes with sensitive, tortured lyrics. Overall, it's the run-of-the-mill stuff you'd hear from just about any other Warped Tour act. Oh, that's nice of him. <laughs> they also called it one of the best pop punk albums of all time top 50 so yeah reviews are kind of meaningless especially when there's such contradictions there retrospective reviews have been very positive alternative press called the album a subculture touchstone describing it as a magical transcendent and deceptively smart pop punk masterpiece that ushered in a vibrant scene resurgence with a potent combination of charisma new media marketing and hardcore punk urgency the band expanded upon their evaluation writing there's no overstating the impact take this to your grave has had on not only the scene and eventually mainstream culture it represents a zeitgeist that launched untold numbers of bands to pick up some musical gear make noise in their garages and actively participate in this culture the fact that the album continues to resonate with generations in the years following is a testimony to its longevity rolling stone placed the album at number five on their as i was just saying 50 greatest pop punk albums list writing that take this to your grave ushered in a whole new genre blurring scene in which heavy riffs and a screamo aesthetic mingled with old-fashioned teen heartbreak. Gigwise called the album an almost flawless slice of pop punk. The record had just the right amount of sincerity, cynicism, and slick pop culture references. It didn't matter if you were 14 or 24, Take This to Your Grave would appeal to the streak of teenage bitterness inside all of us, end quote. And I would agree with that last statement. It's a great record. I like revisiting it. Obviously, Fall Out Boy has changed a lot since then. It's not that I dislike a lot of their newer albums. I just think they're fairly hit or miss, but I do often fondly go back and fondly reminisce over Take This to Your Grave. It's a pop punk staple. Came out at just the right time. Definitely an important record for the scene and pop punk in general. And yeah, you should definitely go back and check it out revisit it sing all the words because you know them i'm sure you do we all do every song is fantastic front to back it's a really consistent album i'm going to do two really quick fallout boy stories the first story is a fun one because when we played with fallout boy i had already met them and given them game time's first album and joe troman was basically giving me some criticism <laughs> he was giving me some constructive criticism for the first song at the time which was when time stands still it has a really long intro almost two minutes long and he was giving me crap because he said that intro is way too long you need vocals coming in immediately and if you listen to take this to your grave the vocals come in within usually about 10 to 15 seconds so he was probably correct that intro was probably too long we were trying to do long epic intros like some of our favorite bands like no effects and strung out and Lagwagon and rufio and the second story is a fun one i remember going to see fallout boy in st louis in a tiny little punk club called the creepy crawl Anybody from St. Louis knows that venue. And I remember standing side stage. Fall Out Boy was up on that tiny little stage. And Pete Wentz kept running up to the wall and then jumping off of it. And 
you know, rock star fashion as one does. And at one point he jumped off the wall and clipped his eye with Joe Troman's guitar headstock. And he just immediately started bleeding out of his eyebrow near his temple on one side. And he was just bleeding profusely all over this pink Spitalfield shirt that he was wearing. I remember it vividly. And it was almost as if he didn't realize he was bleeding until maybe the bridge of a song because he did it during the middle of the song and he just continued to play. And then I'll never forget, as soon as the song ended, he grabbed his shirt, wiped his face, and then got in the mic and said, don't ever follow a band that won't bleed for you. Something like that. Pretty rock star. Pretty cool. But there's a picture that Mark from... Mark Rose from Spitalfield shared the other day where he's wearing that pink Spitalfield shirt and it's covered in blood and you can see that Pete Wentz has kind of a swollen eyebrow and it was from that night and I messaged him about it. So fun times at the Creepy Crawl in St. Louis. All right, I hope you enjoyed that deep dive of Fall Out Boy's debut album, Take This to Your Grave. If there's another album you'd like me to do a deep dive on, the history of, feel free to shoot me a message. I'd love to hear from you. My Instagram handle is Kyle underscore Devlin. That's D-E-V, V as in Victor, L-I-N underscore underscore. Hit me up. Let's reminisce about Fall Out Boy and their early albums. It's fun, man. Or woman. All right. Okay. Have a wonderful rest of your week. I appreciate you listening, and I'll talk to you next time. Hey, thanks so much for listening. I really do appreciate it. I hope you had a good time. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want to help the podcast out, if you want to do a massive solid for us here at Having a Blast, if you could just leave us a review, a five-star review would be amazing wherever you listen to podcasts. Or if you just want to recommend this podcast to a friend who might enjoy it. All right. Hope you have a wonderful day. Hope you're having a blast listening to your favorite records. I'll talk to you later. (laughs) 